Welcome to Parsha Lab, a new podcast from Aleph Beta. I'm Imu Shalev, your co-host. And I am Rabbi David Foreman, your other co-host, and I'm delighted to be here with you, Imu. Rabbi Foreman, why do we decide to do a podcast? Ah, uh, I feel like, Imu, you are the simple son who is asking the wise son a grand and wise question. Why indeed are we looking to do this podcast? Well, there are many reasons, my son. One is that we think that by by taking a look at the Parsha more carefully in a, in a kind of chavrusa, almost study partner kind of way, uh, we can uncover some, some interesting things by really just looking at the text itself and letting the text uh, kind of speak to us. Wait, I'm really confused. Are you the wise son or are you pretending to be my father? Because a couple of times you called me your son. <laughs> I don't think the wise son is related to the simple son. Oh, gosh, there's all sorts of crazy edible stuff going on here. I don't even know. Uh, I'm the simple father. Let's let's keep it at that. I am so confused, but it sounds like a great way to start. Yeah, basically consider us shot hunters looking at the text, forgetting everything we thought we knew and really trying to get to the shot, understand what's happening in this text, see what excites us, what we can learn from it. Um, and yeah, without further ado, let's dive into Parshat Ba'era. Year after year, you get these 10 plagues, and the 10 plagues are really, really powerful, really, really cool, seemingly to show God's majesty over the universe. But my question are, are these plagues kind of arbitrary? Like, why exactly did God choose locust and and hailstones? Or from this week's Parsha, why is there blood and frogs and lice? Are, are these just any, any, any plagues and God could have chosen, you know, flying razor blades or knife attack, and these were just what was on the menu that day? Um, or, or is there some sort of spiritual meaning behind the plagues? Or, or, or maybe not spiritual, but is there something more uh, to to God's specific choice of the plagues that he chose? Yeah, it's, that's a really great question. And I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of thought thunk about that and ink spilled about that. Um, uh, I'll share with you, you know, some some stuff that I've heard that might, that perhaps might resonate with you, uh, as well as maybe some some thoughts of my own. Um, you know, I, I talked in general terms uh, about this subject, but not in quite the particular way you're thinking of it. In uh, my book, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over, and in a series of videos we put out several years back on Aleph Beta, the general theory, uh, as you know, that I suggested there is that the plagues in Toto um, represent a kind of kaleidoscope of different natural forces and suggest that God is master over all of them. And the whole point of the plagues is the diversity of them. But the diversity of them, why in particular is there a plague of blood? Why is that followed by uh, the plague of frogs, by the plague of lice? And how does that transition into other plagues like the, the death of the animals and the wild animals everywhere and, 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 and barat and hailstones and those things? I think it, it sort of begs the reader to engage in a kind of connect the dots game. Almost can you discern a pattern uh, here, and what might that pattern mean? Uh, one of the patterns which um, uh, I think is um, ha has been suggested, or at least I've heard of, is uh, that there are three kinds of plagues here, or three 
meta groupings or large groupings of plagues. You see that also in the Tatsach Adash Ba'achav acronym, which uh, for many of us is familiar to us from the from the Haggadah, where we actually break up the plagues using an acronym. And if you think about why that acronym is there, one possibility is it just makes it easy for people to remember. The other possibility is, is that um, by breaking it up into three words, Tatsach, Adash, and Ba'achav, uh, that suggests that there are sort of three groupings, or at least that Chazal, our rabbis, saw three groupings. Then the question is, what are those three groupings? So one interesting possibility uh, might be if you think about... Um, sort of uh, uh, the plagues affecting height. Uh, I don't know quite how to say it, but the Datsach plagues seem to affect the ground. The Adash plagues seem to affect uh, the area between ground and sky, or at least the, the you know the, the height of a person. Uh, we relate to those plagues. If you imagine sort of a person staring onto space, a person could look down and see the Datsach plagues, could look across and see the Adash plagues, and could look up and see the Ba'achav plagues. And thus, there's a kind of sense in which, uh, if you think about God being the master of what, we would say the masters of heavens and earth and everything in between. So the plagues kind of represent that. So you think about plague number one, you have blood, right? So the, the Nile is blood. You look down, you see that. Plague number two, you see frogs. So the frogs are coming out of the Nile and they're infesting the land, but you look down at that. Then you have Kenim, you have lice, also ground-based. So we can call this the Uncle Moishi theory of plagues, right? This is up, up, down, down, down right, down. left, and all around. Exactly. It's the Uncle Moishi theory of plagues. We can even sing it, Emu. Just so you, just just for, for our podcasters, my foreman every week is going to try to get me to sing something. I am. And should I ever succeed, Emo, you know that that will immediately cause our ratings on iTunes to skyrocket. Musical Parsha. I can't wait for us to do Musical Parsha each week. Yep, we can go straight into Musical Parsha. Anyway, so yes, we can call this the Uncle Moishi Theory of the Plagues. Uh, but I, I think there's there's probably other lines that can be drawn as well. Curious as to whether you had any thoughts. Yeah, so so that 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 general idea... Um, kind of again goes to the goes to the theory that um, the purpose of the plagues is to demonstrate God's mastery over the universe and to bring uh, Pharaoh to cower before this uh, this God who really runs everything up up down down right left and all around but I wondered if you could if you could you know start with me maybe in just the first plague of blood uh, or perhaps even right before that with uh, the staff turning into the snake um, I wondered if you had any specific thoughts on on just why there's a staff turning into a snake or 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 blood, and see maybe we can keep going uh, as we as we begin to explore those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think this is something which actually you and I have uh, touched based a little bit on in the past, but uh, I'm not sure I can take it all the way through the plagues. Um, I see a bit of a pattern in the beginning of ones, but just to kind of recap. One of the themes that might exist in the plagues is that God is expressing a kind of empathy with the people of Israel, and uh, there's a kind of redemption happening before a physical redemption that's going to express itself in actually leaving Egypt. There's a redemption of the pain and the suffering uh, by God indicating that uh, he, he's aware of what's going on and almost to use a, a modern term, uh, validating the experience of, of the people. Because if you think about one of the greatest crimes of the Egyptians, um, one of the 
great crimes is is that the the the, the most heinous act of the Egyptians, of their greatest crimes, it's probably the killing of the babies, the throwing of the babies in the Nile. But the nature of that crime was not just that babies were uh, were killed and were exterminated, but that there was a kind of natural cover-up that was inherently a part of the crime. So if you use the Nile... Yeah, right, Foreman, when you first told me about this, I thought it was kind of breathtaking. When you sat across from me at a Carlos and Gabby and asked me, what is the greatest crime the Egyptians perpetrated on the nation of Israel? I said slavery. Um, I almost kind of forgot that uh, there was this terrible genocide, the the killing of firstborn babies. And maybe that's kind of the way the Egyptians designed it for me to forget. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. So if you take this creepy story one step further, right, uh, it kind of meshes with something the Ramban says, right? The Ramban and the early chapters of Exodus suggests that there was a deceptive descent into slavery. It wasn't just Pharaoh came along all of a sudden and said, hey, you guys are slaves. There was this havenit chakmalo, let's deal wisely with them. And part of let's deal wisely with them is that you don't just come and turn night into day and take freestanding people who are landowners and nobility and throw them into jail and make them slaves. There is some sort of deceptive descent into slavery. It's the lobster being boiled in the pot and never realizing until the water gets too hot and it's too late. And as part of that deceptive descent into slavery, a, a descent that begins with taxation and then goes to confiscation of land and other things, that part of that uh, deceit may well have been um, that the state-sponsored aspect of the greatest crimes against humanity created by the Egyptians may have itself been deceitful, may not have been above board. In other words, it's kind of right hand, left hand, good good cop, bad cop. And there are these mobs that are going into homes and that are taking children. But ostensibly, you can still report it to the police. You can still report it to the authorities. But when you report it to the authorities, you know, so it just gets hung up in the courts. And it's like, so did you have any witnesses? Did anybody see this in the middle of the night? You're screaming baby taken away from you. Anybody prepared to testify? And it's like, no, no, I don't have any witnesses. Can you show me any evidence of the crime? And it's like, you know, you walk outside in the morning and it's just, again, the birds are chirping and the, the Nile is placid. And the Nile is sort of conspiratorial. It is part of the uh, the great conspiracy, almost as if nature is conspiring together with the Egyptians to cover over the crime. Um, and you're, say, you're saying that the Nile was, was used basically as a major cover up, that they didn't they didn't, you know, just do a mass grave or anything like that. They threw the babies into the Nile. Why did they throw the babies into the Nile? Right. And if you think about it, it's almost biting off your nose to, to spite your face because what the Egyptians gain is a cover-up. Uh, what they lose is potentially fouling the Nile, uh, except that, you know, maybe they don't lose fouling the Nile because the Nile's a big place. If you think about the quadrillions of gallons of water that course through the Nile every day, uh, you know, flowing uh, and, and consistently replenishing itself. Uh, there's enough water there to, uh, to you know, to, to sort of drown out any evidence of malfeasance on the part of the Egyptians. So, you know, the, the, here the Egyptians are, 
are playing Schopenhauer on the stolen pianos and and the Jews are left without their children and where did it all happen and where did it all come from? And sort of the first plague seems to be when the Nile turns into blood, it's God sort of forcing the uh, the perpetrators of this to confront the evidence of their crimes and almost as if nature is not going to play along anymore. And the, the, the Nile is going to turn into blood and the blood of these children is going to be there both for the perpetrator and for the victim. For the perpetrator, they're forced to confront the heinous nature and the ghoulish cruelty of their crimes. And the validation for the victim is that, no, I wasn't crazy, right? The Nile has turned into blood. This is what they've done and it's not something you can hide. So plague number one might be that kind of validation. Um, I think when you and I had sort of talked about this, one of the really sort of brilliant things, I think, which you kind of brought to this notion is that uh, if you look at the next plague, the plague of frogs, uh, you sort of have two two things happening in the plague of frogs. One of the things which uh, you mentioned before is this notion of the, the staff turning into a snake, which is really the, the pre-plague or the plague that happens before blood. Um, and if you think about a snake, a snake is this sort of creepy crawly thing, whether it's a snake or whether it's a tanin, the sea monster, it's the kind of thing that you recoil from. And indeed, when Moshe sees this creature that the staff turns into, when God sort of gives him a dry run for this test, he actually does recoil as this creepy crawly thing. And if you think about sort of creepy crawlies, I think you know one way to see it is that the Egyptians are sort of viewing the Jews that way. Uh, the Israelites are these creepy crawlies. It's like if you think about a snake, what do you do with a snake? Uh, so what you do with a snake if you try to kill it is just throw it in the water. And it's almost like uh, Israel uh, is this collective snake. Uh, and, and again, the verbs of, of Exodus seem to reinforce this when the Egyptians are confronted with the population explosion of Israel. The language is vayakutsu mi pnei bnei Israel, which literally again meals, means that they recoiled or that they were recoiled almost in disgust as if the Jews were these sort of creepy, crawly, non-human things. And the way you get rid of them is you just, ugh, I can't even touch you. You throw it in the Nile and uh, you get rid of it. And it's almost as if um, the that Pharaoh, in response to that, has got these um, frogs that are crawling out of the swamp, their natural place, which is uh, the Nile and coming into land. And it's almost as if, you know, if the if, if Israelites are really creepy crawlies and you you want to get rid of the creepy crawlies by throwing them into the water, what happens when the creepy when the real creepy crawlies come and threaten you on land um, and enter the plague of uh, uh, the plague of frogs? And the really brilliant point that you had, I think, about that was the language of the text that describes what happens when the frogs finally ceased. When they ceased, they get piled up in these piles, and the stench of the frogs just wafts through Egypt and just makes it unbearable to just walk around because of the stench of the decaying frogs. And the language for that in Hebrew is, um, uh, I forget the exact language, it's Vayiv Ash, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the language for that echoes a verb which the Egyptians really used to describe their interaction with the Jewish people, or actually even better, that the Jews or that the Israelites themselves used to describe how the Egyptians would talk about them. Um, the uh, the oppressed slaves come to Moshe and complain to him, Asher hiv ashtem et ruchenu, that you've made us stink uh, 
in front of Pharaoh and that, and that Pharaoh is, and the Egyptians are disgusted with us and are treating us so horribly. And why do you make us stink like that? Um, and that's really that sense of alienation that the Israelites feel that we're being treated like not just live creepy crawlies, but dead creepy crawlies that are just decaying, that are just so disgusting that they stink. And it's almost like God is, is forcing the perpetrators to come to grips with that sort of alienation and saying, okay, so what happens when uh, the Nile turns into blood? Because human blood, because these aren't creepy crawlies, because these are real human beings that you've destroyed. And what happens when the true creepy crawlies come out of the water? And what happens when they stink? And and it's it's this visceral kind of forcing the perpetrator to come to grips with the crimes and concomitant sort of validation of the experience of the victim. Yeah. So just to review here, what we're saying is the Egyptians tried to cover their heinous crimes. They threw babies into the Nile. The Nile had no reaction. It was the same Nile, same crystal clear, beautiful Nile. And God is sort of showing empathy with these, with the victims, with, with the Israelites who are, have this terrible injustice against them. Nobody knows about their injustice. And then God says, I'm going to make your crimes chase after you, so to speak. I'm going to make them so apparent. A, the Nile is, is going to turn into blood. So the, the river is not going to cover your crimes anymore. Your crimes are going to be apparent. The river itself is going to bleed. And then your crimes are not even going to stay in the water. Your crimes are going to come out of the water, so to speak. And that's sort of uh, Svardea, which comes into the homes of everybody. And you can't can't look away anymore. You can't You can't turn your back on this and pretend it's not happening. And everything is going to be disgusting. It's going to smell. It's going to be just as as, as much as you treated the, the Israelites and you, you felt like they, they smelled and then now your crimes are going to stink. So I want to challenge you, Reformer, to see if you can if you can keep going um, into Kenim. So here, let me read this to you. Okay. So Vativash Haaretz I actually think is, is interesting language because in the, in the plague of, of Dam, the plague was lo- localized to the river, but now you have the land, Vativash Haaretz, the land itself is is now disgusting. It, it, it's stinking. And the very next thing that happens is Vayomer Hashem al Moshe, Emor el Hachet Afar Haaretz. Now you're going to hit the dust of the land. I wonder if there's some sort of progression here, which is they tried to hide their crimes. So the crimes in, in blood are revealed. The crimes in Svardea are chasing after them. And now the, 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 the crimes in Kinim maybe, and I'm curious to hear what you think, maybe the crimes in Kinim are manifesting in the land itself. It's a, a plague on the land. Afar Haaretz. Yeah, it is kind of interesting that you have that juxtaposition uh, that the land begins to become affected by the stench of the decaying frogs. The next thing that happens is that uh, Aaron takes a staff and strikes the dust of the land from which the the uh, the kinim come. What I was what I thought where you were going with that is that <coughs> you think about what kinim do. Not quite sure exactly how lice attack. But it seems to me that they swarm, right? It's not they, and if they swarm, they swarm kind of in the air. Um, if you think about the difference between aretz and atharha aretz, to me, aretz suggests kind of the, you know, it's grounded at least, right? So you have the the stench of the decaying frogs lying in heaps upon the ground. 
the next thing that you happen is sort of swirling dust in the air and that the kinim are like swirling dust and it almost feels like you have this sort of contamination in egypt that's spreading from the water which is blood to the land which are these frogs that are laying piled upon the land to the air and uh the way it, it, there's a progression which is that water doesn't the, the contamination of the water doesn't stay in the water that these frogs that crawl out of the water and enter into the land and decay there now the land is contaminated but the contamination of the land doesn't sort of stay there if you think about lice uh lice are probably bred one might think in the dying corpses of frogs and it's almost as if that gives rise to a whole other plague which is attacking not just the land but there's something that's coming from the land and from the afar of the land and now swirling in the air and contaminating the air and all these lice that are the wind-driven lice like wind-driven uh, dust that are now contaminating uh, mankind's space in the air. So you have a sort of three realms being attacked here, the realm of the, of the waters, the realm of the land, and the realm of really the air or the atmosphere. So that's an interesting possibility. One might say the first three plagues are really about one thing, but one thing sort of migrate, migrating across three platforms. And the thing is sort of a kind of, uh, a kind of contamination that progresses from one form into another into another. Mm -hmm. And 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 sort of the imagery that I'm seeing is their sins are chasing them, right? So the sins become apparent. The sins come onto the onto the land. Why are they gathering all the frogs into piles again? Like it was, they were everywhere. The, it was the, the Torah says the frogs were were really in their homes and their ovens. So they gather them all together. They place them into piles. They try to you know create the frog graveyard, so to speak. But it contaminates the land, so that the sins keep keep chasing. Yeah, that's an interesting point where you could say, like, in a way, the attempt to kill the babies and to contain them in the Nile backfires when the Nile turns into blood, right? The Nile turning into blood backfires when a bloody Nile forces an exodus of frogs onto the land. Um, the the frog graveyard is an attempt to control the frogs everywhere, which backfires by creating a whole pile of polluted frogs out of which these lice emerge um, and it's almost like nothing you can do can contain the crime or the chain reaction devastating after effects of it and it's not to say that this is I'm, I'm not arguing that these are all naturalistic things and that there's no miracle here but just in terms of seeing it connects the dots progression it may be that there's a larger story to be told as you weave these together and perhaps that story is that you can't contain the effects of a heinous crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's really powerful. I'm, I wonder if this theory continues into into the other plagues, but this may, might be a, a good place to stop and something um, something to contemplate about these first three plagues. When uh, you first told me that theory about blood, and even now, it just feels like a much more adult story uh, than the one that I, I first learned, where there is not just a God who is trying to bring Egypt to its knees, and not even just a God who is trying to show his mastery over the world, but a God who sees the way in which his people, his own child, was, um, was so terribly tormented, um, and who is uh, 
showing how he can redeem their suffering by first making sure that the abuser's crimes, which were previously hidden, are now brought to light. Um, it reminds me a lot of what's going on in pop culture now with a lot of women who are treated terribly, whose crimes were, were hidden. And, you know, the, the, the abusers and uh, the abusers walk around every day and are treated as heroes. It's one thing for a victim to get a, a really nice settlement payment um, or even to be rescued. It's another thing for the, the perpetrator to be brought to very public justice and f to be made to face their crimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the notion of the crime that uh, uh, that that can't be covered up—the crime that whatever you try to cover finds a way to escape from underneath that cover—is um, uh, yeah, it's it's powerful and certainly has some resonance, uh, uh, you know, with with the moment as well. Um, Fantastic. Well, this has been fun, Emu, and I look forward to continuing the adventure as we forge onward with sword and shield into future martios. Thank you so much for joining the Nearby Foreman. For all of you out there, please come back next week for another episode of Parsha Lab by Aleph Beta. This is a new project, so we'd love to hear your feedback. Please send us an email at info at alephbeta.org. And keep in mind that once it's not a new project anymore, we get less and less interested in you, our <laughs> listeners. So you just turn us off. Actually, we always love to hear you. Whether it's new or whether you know something. Old, something I love about podcast recordings is yeah. when um, it's like they beg you for their call to action. It's like, please come back, please rate us in the iTunes store, please, please subscribe. Look, guys, if you liked us, great. If you don't like us, no offense taken. You're probably not even here at the end. That's right. Talking to the diehard fans now. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>